0: This morning, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, uh, as part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. It's on page 810 in the Pew Bibles in front of you, uh, if you're using that. So Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. Well, throughout history... Uh, there have been many famous serial killers uh, like Charles Manson who led a series of nine murders at four different locations. Uh, There was the Zodiac killer here in the Bay Area uh, who killed about 37 people near Vallejo and Benicia uh, also in the 60s and 70s. Even closer to home in 1972 and 1973, Santa Cruz had not one, but two different serial killers named Ed Kemper and Herbert Mullen. Uh, All of these murderers did absolutely horrific things to their victims before ultimately killing them. Uh, Just last year, a little over 17,000 people were murdered uh, officially uh, on the books in the United States. And, And this was actually praised as a massive, massive drop in the statistics. Uh, That's just the ones that were known about and officially counted as murder. Uh, If if this is making you kind of uncomfortable and sick to your stomach even to think about, you're in good company. Uh, I assure you that I'm not just talking about this for shock value. Um, Most of us hear things like this and we're completely, completely disgusted. Uh, We think, that's awful. Uh, Murder is abhorrent. I could never do that. Uh, It takes a particular type of psycho to murder someone, right? Uh, If you're thinking that, that's right where Jesus wants you and me this morning. Uh, That's where what his, his hearers were thinking when he taught this next section of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's dive into the text. Matthew 5, verse 21 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Uh, very clearly, that that Jesus came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but instead to fulfill them. Uh, He said this, he said, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We learned that he's serious about the law, right? We learned that he's even more serious than the scribes and the Pharisees, actually. Uh, He said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, today, in the next five sections, are, are kind of an exposition or an explanation or exploration Uh, of that statement, uh, of exactly that. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is going to take uh, the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and show us how his kingdom righteousness actually exceeds that. So today, Jesus begins with the sixth commandment. uh, And our three points for this sermon are, are, are these. Number one righteousness is more than skin deep, number two, unhindered worship, and number three, urgent reconciliation. So uh, point one, righteousness is more than skin deep. Uh, I want to start with a question. Uh, how many of you have committed a, a murder? Maybe, maybe that's a dangerous question to ask. Um, my guess is that in most places, if you ask that question, Uh, You're going to get a room full of no hand raisers, I hope. Um, Like I said earlier, most of us think of murder and we kind of recoil in in horror, rightfully so. Uh, That's something that only really bad people do, and we're not really bad people, right? So we could never do that. I'm not that kind of a person, we think. This was uh, the posture of, of the Pharisees in Jesus' audience, but kind of taken to extremes. See, in their minds, they, they looked at the Ten Commandments, and they saw uh, the Ten Commandments and the law as a whole, and they thought, yep, I keep those perfectly. Check. I do that really well. And so, as they're thinking that, Jesus goes for the jugular. Uh, I mean, think about it. If we're talking about the Ten Commandments— What are probably the the two easiest ones to keep to say, check, not guilty of that? Murder, the sixth commandment, and and adultery, the the seventh commandment, right? You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Those are the, the easy ones, right? Only really bad people commit those sins, right? Not so fast, Jesus says. Those are the exact two that he's going to start with here in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what Jesus says in verses 21 and 22. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire." See, for the Pharisees, the the sixth commandment, uh, you shall not murder, was strictly something that they thought of uh, as something external. Uh, They looked at Exodus 20. They looked at Numbers 35, and they said, uh, murder is anyone who unlawfully takes innocent life. There's nothing more or less than that act. Same today for the most part, right? Uh, Murder in the dictionary is defined as this. Uh, the offense of unlawfully killing a human being with malice aforethought expressed or implied. To be righteous in the Pharisees' eyes and to fulfill this commandment was something explicitly and only external. Remember, Jesus' righteousness exceeds theirs. And so he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, It's really important for us to to kind of stop here and understand this, that Jesus is not, hear me loud and clear, Jesus is not about to contradict the Old Testament. Uh, We learned last week that that Jesus upheld and fulfilled the Old Testament. He loved it. So, So look closely at what Jesus is saying here. He says, You have heard that it was said When Jesus is outright quoting the Old Testament, that's not what he says. He says, it is written, and then he proceeds to quote the Old Testament. That's not what he does here. Uh, Understand that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, Uh, but what happened was the Jews had been taking captivity in Babylon for many, many years. And while they're in Babylon, they kind of lost their Hebrew, and they began speaking Aramaic. In other words, the Hebrew scriptures were somewhat kind of lost to most of them. When they came back from captivity, they had to rely on rabbis and scribes who kind of wanted to keep them in ignorance. Sounds like what was happening before the Protestant Reformation, right? So here they are, not able to read the scriptures for themselves and simply relying on the scribes and the Pharisees to tell them what the scriptures mean. That's precisely what Jesus is attacking here, not the Old Testament. He's not attacking the Old Testament, but he's attacking their interpretation of the Old Testament. He's saying, I know what you've been told, but their interpretation, that interpretation that's been told to you, it doesn't go far enough. It's only skin deep. It's only external, and it misses the point altogether. So he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This word judgment here, another really important word for us to understand. Uh, The word judgment here is a civil or a legal term. He's saying, You've heard that you shouldn't murder because you're going to have to go to court, and you're going to be found guilty. If you murder, you're going to get in trouble. That's, That's what he's saying. But Jesus says, Hold on a minute. Motive actually matters here. If if you don't murder because you don't want to get in trouble, have you really obeyed the sixth commandment? Jesus says no. What about God? You can offend God completely and still not get in trouble in a civil court, right? So he says this in verse 22. He says, but I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Bummer. Jesus has just taken this, this narrow interpretation of the sixth commandment and widened it to include our hearts. Oh no. Now, it's not just those really bad people who are guilty of rebelling against the sixth commandment, it's me it's you. We're liable to judgment. Same word as before. Uh, I'm deserving of the same judgment as the murderer if I'm angry with my brother. At this point, knowing the Pharisees, they would probably be picking apart Jesus's statements and saying something like, Ooh, oh, good. He said brother. Uh, Since I don't have any brothers, I'm safe. Uh, I can be angry with my sister and my neighbor and my co-worker and my boss and still be righteous. They often miss the point altogether by by doing and teaching things like that all the time. And that's why Jesus says what he says to them. Yes, it's about the letter of the law, but it's even more about the spirit of the law. It's about what the scriptures say, absolutely. Absolutely but it's about their true interpretation. Jesus says the true interpretation involves external actions, absolutely, but also internal heart motives. And this isn't anything new. It's not something that Jesus is just inventing or adding to Scripture somehow. Psalm 51, I really encourage you to go read the whole thing. Uh, It's amazing, but Psalm 51, verse 6 David says, "Behold, this is all the way back in the Old Testament, before Jesus." David says, "Behold, speaking to God, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart." How about the Shema, which is at the core of Israel's faith? This is like their version of John 3:16, right? They quote this all the time. Deuteronomy 4, verses 4, or 6, verses 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Again, Psalm 44, verses 20 through 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. The heart matters to God. It always has. This isn't something new. But the Pharisees ignored that. It didn't fit into their external interpretation of what righteousness was. So if you have anger in your heart, you're not righteous. You're liable to judgment, like a murderer. Jesus goes on, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, And here we go. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. So, first we have heart murder, and now it's actually tongue murder. Uh, This phrase, insults his brother, uh, literally says, whoever says to his brother, raka. It might actually say that in some of your translations. Uh, Raka is actually this untranslatable word that was a common, kind of well-known insult during Jesus' time. Most commentators believe that it meant something along the lines of, you're morally corrupt, you're empty, a nothing or a nobody. You can kind of get the sense of it when you even say the word aloud. Raka, right? It sounds like something you might say if someone cut you off in traffic. Uh, There might be even hand gestures that go along with it. So Jesus says, whoever does that will be liable to the council. Now, that's a step past the civil courts that we were talking about earlier. Uh, This word translated council is actually the word Sanhedrin. Um, Many of you might have heard that. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish Senate. Now this is getting serious. Uh, You've heard uh, the children saying, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Jesus says, wrong. Words can murder. And he goes on, he says, Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And this word translated fool is this word moros, which is where we get our English word moron. Uh, It means foolish or stupid. I do actually need to stop here and clarify something for us, though. Uh, In Jesus' words, there's actually an assumption here, or more of an implication. And that's that these words are being said with no truth in them. Or, Or that this anger is a selfish anger and not righteous anger. So, look, Jesus as a human, we know this to be true, Jesus as a human got angry. In Matthew chapter 21, he goes in and cleanses the temple. He he makes a whip. He flips over tables, and he ran these people out righteously. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, look what Paul says here. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So yes, it is possible to be angry and not to sin. Now, there's this great article on this website called Chalies.com, and it's titled, Three Marks of Righteous Anger. And I found this article to be extremely, extremely healthy here. Three Marks of Righteous Anger. And he says this. He says, The first mark of righteous anger is that it reacts against actual sin. It arises from an accurate perception of what is actually evil. And he says, The shorter catechism helpfully summarizes sin as any want of or conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. This is what ought to arouse anger, he says. He goes on to say, This means that for anger to be righteous, it cannot arise in response to a violation of my preferences. It cannot arise because I've been inconvenienced, or I feel that my rights and freedoms have been trampled on. Righteous anger reacts against what is really sin. I think he's right there. So the first mark of righteous anger is that it reacts to actual sin. Second, he says this. He says, when we turn to the Bible to find accounts of righteous anger, we see that this kind of anger focuses on God and on his kingdom, his rights, and his concerns. Not on me, my kingdom, my rights, and my concerns. It is the violation of God's name or God's fame that motivates anger, not my name and my fame. So think about King David We read from Psalm 51 earlier. Psalm 51, verse 4, David says this. He says, he's talking to God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So you see that? He's focused on God and the offense against God. So righteous or non-sinning anger is over real sin, And, number two, it has God's character in mind. Third, he notes that righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. In other words, righteous anger doesn't express itself unrighteously. That seems kind of like a no-duh statement. But righteous anger doesn't express itself unrighteously. Righteous anger is actually self-controlled. He uh, goes on to explain, he says, It doesn't rant and rage. It doesn't swear and curse. It doesn't mock and sulk. It doesn't sink to self-pity and despair. It doesn't blow, blow blow off people and storm away from them. Righteous anger is a controlled anger that moves toward good and specific ends. Godly strains of mourning, comfort, joy, praise, and action balance it. So righteous anger is over real sin. It has God's character in mind, and it responds in godly ways. And we see Jesus doing exactly that in Mark 6, verses 1 through 4. Mark 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus goes into the synagogue, and he sees this man with a withered hand. And there sat the Pharisees just waiting to trap Jesus uh, if he actually healed the man so in Mark 6, verse 5, it says this, And he, speaking of Jesus, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So in our passage, Jesus is not making a blanket statement over all anger. He's speaking about sinful anger, not righteous anger. Well, what about this word, Fool? or morose, same exact thing. If it's a true statement, and the person is being biblically foolish, it's actually loving to say so. Where do I get that? Well, Psalm 14, verse one. We see this in the scriptures. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's foolish, the proverb says, or the Psalm says. Also, the the Proverbs are chocked full of statements about the fool and what's foolish. How about the New Testament? Well, Jesus himself, Matthew 23, verse 17. Matthew 23, verse 17. Jesus, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, look what he says. You blind fools. Morose, same word. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple uh, that... uh, that has made the gold sacred. Calls them blind fools. How about Paul? Paul, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's upset that the gospel's being distorted in their midst. He says, Oh foolish Galatians. So what's the difference Between what Jesus is saying in in Matthew 5, our passage, and here in Matthew 23, where he's calling them blind fools. Well, again, uh, what we've been saying from the beginning is that Jesus is after not just external actions, but behind the heart, behind the external actions. His heart is completely righteous and true in calling the Pharisees foolish. What Jesus is addressing here in Matthew 5 is something completely different. There's unrighteous anger behind the word in Matthew 5. There's a sinful heart that's making a statement with no concern for God, but concern for self. Being called foolish, if you actually are, is a gift. Look at what David says in Psalm 141, verse 5. Psalm 141, verse 5. David says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. So harsh words, uh, when they come from a righteous man or from a pure heart, is oil for your head. It's a kindness. That's the difference between what Jesus does in calling the Pharisees foolish and what he's speaking against here. It's a matter of the heart. So back to our text. Uh, This is unrighteous anger that has, has come up from the heart, boiled over, and come out of the mouth. And Jesus says that that person will be liable to the hell of fire. You see this. If the murderer in the beginning was liable to the county courthouse, and the insulter, remember that the Raqqa guy, liable to the Jewish Senate, this person who calls someone a fool with anger in their heart, is liable to something seemingly much, much worse. But what is it? The text says, the hell of fire. Well, what's that? What's that about? Well, Uh, The actual word here is this word Gehenna. Uh, In the Old Testament, there was this valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And it was a place where pagans actually made child sacrifices to the pagan god Molech. In 2 Kings 23, King Josiah becomes king. And he actually does what's righteous. He abolishes these practices. He actually defiles that entire valley by making it a dumping ground for filth and the corpses of criminals. So seemingly from that point forward uh, to the first century, this valley, the Valley of Hinnom, was used kind of as as a trash pit that was constantly on fire. So think of it kind of like a permanent incinerator that's always, always burning. Throughout the Bible, this is the image that Jesus gives to to, uh, symbolize the place of eternal punishment, reserved for those who don't turn from sin and trust in him. So Jesus uses a place and an image that people understood to explain something that's literal and eternal. So what's his point here? Jesus' words, over and over and over again, and specifically here, Jesus' words are meant to condemn the self-righteous. They're there not just to condemn the Pharisee, though. They're there to condemn you. They're there to condemn me. Our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it doesn't. Let's just be honest. All of us have broken the sixth commandment. All of us are liable to hell. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. Everywhere you've failed at keeping the law, Jesus succeeded. If you'll turn from sin and trust in Jesus, you're made right before God. You're declared righteous, according to Scripture. Because of Jesus dying on the cross in your place, your debt is paid. You are made right. You're no longer liable. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. Repent and believe. So righteousness is more than skin deep. Point two, unhindered worship. So if point number one is Jesus' main point, and I think that it is, he continues on in this section with two different illustrations or application points, so to speak. To do this, he starts with a story. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. So he's given us all of this up to this point, talking about how we've broken the Sixth Commandment. And then he gives us an example, verse 23 and 24. He says, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So, If if anger in my heart towards a brother is murderous sin, Jesus wants me to understand that this isn't just a, a horizontal action. It actually has vertical consequences, too. It affects my relationship with God and with man. This is, again, nothing new. God has always been about the heart. And he's actually refused worship from the unreconciled. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, look what God says. Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 17. He says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And in verse 13, he goes on to say, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath are the calling of, of com, in the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Then he says this: When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Verse sixteen, he says. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He says very similar things in Isaiah chapter 58. There's this horizontal lack of reconciliation, and God says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. You see what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5. He's saying, don't think that you can have anger in your heart and speak wickedly of your brother and then come worship God. True worship is a worship that's reconciled with your brothers and sisters. So settle your issue between man and man before you try to make a connection between man and God. That's what he's saying. Now, in Jesus' words, again, there's an assumption that what your brother has against you is a just claim. There's actual sin or offense there. Sometimes, let's just admit, sometimes people have things against you and you've tried your heart out to reconcile. You've done everything in your power to make things right. Look at what Paul says about that in Romans chapter 12 verses 16 through 19. Romans 12, verses 16 through 19. Paul says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So far as it depends on you, Paul says. So, look, there are are some times that you've sought reconciliation so far as it depends on you. And there's nothing on the other side. Or, there's continued ungodliness on the other side. That's not what Jesus is speaking of here. He's referring to you knowing that someone has a just claim against you as a brother or sister and thinking that you can just go on about your business just between you and God. Jesus says no. He says, your external righteousness, your external show of worship is a stench to me. Go and make things right. Then come and worship. And I'll just add here that Worship isn't just what happens here on a Sunday morning. According to Romans 12, your whole life is worship. Make things right with your brother or sister before thinking that you're offering your life as a sacrifice to God, as a living sacrifice that's pleasing to him, as it says in Romans 12. So You can see that God takes horizontal relationships very, very seriously. I think of 1 Peter 3, 7 where Peter tells husbands that if they're not living in an understanding way with their wives, that their prayers are going to be hindered. I think of Psalm 66, verses 17 and 18. David says, I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So, practically, what does this look like? Practically speaking, It looks like taking time this week, even today, even right now, to take inventory of your relationships. Is there any reconciliation that needs to take place? Ask yourself that question honestly. Is there any reconciliation that needs to take place? If so, pursue that with gusto, so far as it depends on you. Make a phone call, write a letter, Go talk to the person face to face. If they're stone cold and they refuse refuse your offer, trust God, pray for them. You always remain open to reconciliation. But now you can worship God with a clear conscience, knowing that he knows your heart. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And this brings us to our third and final point, Point one, righteousness is more than skin deep. Two, unhindered worship. And three, urgent reconciliation. So if step one in reconciliation is actually admitting your anger, and that anger, admitting that that's just as much a violation of the sixth commandment as murder, if that's step one, admitting that, step two, as we just learned, is correcting the injustice. Step three is to do that immediately. Look with me at Jesus' final illustration in verses 25 and 26. He says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. While uh, this might be practical advice for not getting thrown into jail, Jesus seems to be making a deeper spiritual point here, uh, as he has been all along, and his point seems to be this. Judgment day is coming. If you have a heart that's completely unreconciled to your brother, and you're actually okay with that, let me be as clear as possible. If that's you, you might not be a Christian. That's not the heart posture of a Christian. That's an absence of gospel love. Uh, Look what 1 John 3.15 says about this. 1 John 3.15, it says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's Jesus's point here. If you have anger in your heart or have unreconciled sin between a brother or sister, you need to make that right quickly. That's the heart posture of a Christian. And if that's not you, you'll be handed over to the judge, and to the guard, and to prison. You'll pay what you owe. And again, the context here of prison is eternal hell. Don't let it go too far. That's Jesus' point. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So why do we deal with reconciliation quickly? Why do we deal with reconciliation quickly? Number one, because we may be in danger of hell might be that we're not dealing with it because we're not actually, we don't have the love of Christ in us. Two, because the longer a root of bitterness is allowed to stay, the more rotten the fruit that it's going to produce in you. Think about that. If your child, for those of you who have children, if your child drank poison, I guarantee you'd be acting quickly to get it out of them as quick as possible. That would be the right thing to do. That's the deal here. Anger and unreconciled hearts are poisonous to our souls. So deal with your hearts and deal with each other immediately. So at the end of the day, what's Jesus getting at in this section? Not physically murdering someone. is just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus strikes at the core of all of our self-righteousness. Every single one of us is guilty and deserving of hell. Everyone. Go and reconcile things with your brother who you've spiritually murdered. Then make things right with God and do that immediately. The good news here is that you can be made right with God immediately by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ. We can know that we're justified or made right with God. We can know that we're reconciled to him. We can know that we're forgiven and that Jesus took the wrath that we deserve. If you've never given your life to Jesus in that way, we invite you to do that immediately. Don't wait. That's Jesus's point. On the other side, if you have given your life to Jesus in that way, Take this time to realize that you also cannot stand on your own self-righteousness. You also have broken the sixth commandment repetitively. You've murdered your brothers and sisters. Take this time to think about that, and then to be grateful for the truth of the gospel. You deserve death row. I deserve death row. But in Christ, we've been redeemed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't the gospel good? Let's pray.